You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, we launched a brand new series titled Greater Than Expected. Pastor Tom brought us the first message in the series, Jesus the Messiah. Let's check it out. But we are going to be jumping into a new series that we're going to be kicking off, and we're really getting started and ramping up to Easter. Can you believe it? We're getting ready for Easter. Um, I don't even know where to begin with that, but Easter is coming. So we're going to be getting into the series that we've called Greater Than Expected. Greater Than Expected, and we're going to be talking about this and looking at different angles of the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus as we get ready for Easter, which is, of course, um, an incredible Sunday and essential moment that we gather together to worship, celebrate the fact that Jesus did die on the cross and raise again three days later. Come on, somebody. But for today, as we get into the service, looking at greater than expected, we want to look at Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. That's what we're going to think about, this idea of the Messiah and what that means and what it looks like for what that can teach us about our life of faith. So the passage that I want to start off with today from the Gospel of Mark. This is a passage that many of you will know well. And it's Mark 8, starting in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. This is an important moment. One person claps, we all have to. Come on. So a quick true story that has nothing to do with this message, but we were doing Life Path a few weeks ago, and somebody just sort of said, you know, I forget everything you say, but I remember if one person claps, we all have to, and I say it at work all the time. Anyway... But the word Messiah is a Hebrew word, and it's seen in the Old Testament, and it means anointed one. It literally means to be anointed with oil, in the way that priests, kings, and prophets were ceremonially anointed with oil, and it made them distinct. It meant that they were set apart. It meant that it was distinguished and known, and it was declared publicly that these people are set aside. These are dedicated for something special, for something unique, that God has something for them in his plans. So I couldn't get a clear answer about practically how they're anointed. There's a psalm that talks about the anointing oil being poured over Aaron's head, and that it ran down his beard onto his robe. And I'm not sure if that's typical, but it was certainly oil placed on the head of the person being anointed. And the important thing is that this action, it was taken and viewed as spiritual, and it meant that someone was being set set apart, separated for God's purposes. And the idea that a specific person, an individual, the Messiah, a deliverer, a person who would rise up and fulfill God's promises of freedom and restoration was developed over the course of the whole Old Testament. If you look in the Old Testament, and if you do a quick Google of this, you'll find some very interesting websites where people have done the hard work to map out the Old Testament prophecies. But there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that point to the Messiah. And the anointed one, the one that is going to come and is going to rescue God's people, is over 300 times where there are promises made about the Messiah. And these 300 prophetic declarations the Messiah would come, they weren't made at once. It was developed over a course of hundreds of years throughout the whole Old Testament. Now, I'm going to read another passage to you. Uh, It's helpful for me to share that um, as we get into this passage in Galatians, the Messiah and Christ are interchangeable words. 
So if you, everyone's looking at me like, hold on, are you saying something that's accurate? So I checked with my dad. So if it's wrong, you can blame him. But Messiah and Christ are one and the same idea. There's, um, Messiah is the Hebrew expression of the same idea, the anointed one, the one that is set apart, the one that's going to fulfill God's purposes. Christ, or in the Greek Christos, is the Greek of something that's going to fulfill God's purposes. So Christ and Messiah are interchangeable. So let me read this to you. Um, before the way of faith in Christ, the Messiah, this is from Galatians 3, before that way was available to us, we were placed under God by the law. Now, the law is uh, an abbreviated way of saying the Old Testament. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law, or the Old Testament, was our guardian until Christ, the Messiah, came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. The Old Testament is a God in our life. It is a guardian in our life to protect us, to get us to the point where the Messiah would come. Now, this verse, I would say, is extremely important in giving us as New Testament believers an understanding of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is three quarters of the Bible that you and I read, and the word guardian that Paul uses here is very specific. The guardian is a specific role in the wealthy Greco-Roman homes that he was writing to. In the wealthy homes where they would have a number of servants that were doing the work of the house, the guardian that Paul's talking about uh, was in charge of making sure the children were protected. They were responsible for making sure the children got to and from school and went about town and they'd be involved in their education and their tutoring and making sure that they were getting educated and they would take them about town and teach them how to conduct themselves, how to go through life. This person was responsible for protecting the children in the household. And here Paul is saying, this is the role the Old Testament has in our lives in getting us to Christ. Very literally, the Old Testament leads us by the hand to Jesus. The Old Testament helps us understand that we need a Savior. We need a Deliverer. We need a Messiah. We need someone that is going to come and fix this up. And the Old Testament, just like this guardian in the uh, New Testament homes, would take a child by the hand and walk them safely so that they were ready to step into adulthood. Paul is now saying, this is the role the Old Testament has for you and I. It gets us to the point where we are ready to receive a Messiah. And the first mention of the Messiah is found all the way back in Genesis. Remember I said these 300 promises, they're spread throughout the whole Bible. It's something that builds over the course of the Old Testament scriptures. But the first one we get is all the way back in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, you'll, many of you know the story. There's a story of creation about how God created the heavens and the earth. And then the final, the crown jewel of creation was human beings. We were the ones where God put his thumbprint. He put his image in us and said, here we are. Man and woman, we will make them in our likeness. Created humanity, and it was perfect. And there was a tree. Many of you know the story. There was a tree. We were told, don't eat the fruit of that tree. Any other tree, you can eat that, but not that one. And how many of you have ever been in that situation where don't touch the chocolate cake? And that chocolate cake is history. At least that's how it goes in the woodhouse. But anyway, but that's the story. And sin enters into the world. And then God is explaining the consequences of sin to Adam and Eve and the serpent, who we now know as Satan, that deceived Eve all the way back in the garden. And God is explaining the consequence of this is what has to happen. Now you've made this decision. Now you've let sin creep in. In Genesis 3.14, this is part of God's explanation of the consequence. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed. This is God speaking to the devil. 
You are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, who's he? He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He, this is a promise that goes all the way back. This first idea that God is going to raise someone up that is going to be the deliverer, that is going to be a part of fixing this whole thing. That he will rise up, he will strike your heel. And this idea of a Messiah, there being a chosen one, a deliverer, someone that was going to save God's people, it grows from here. Abraham, further on, is promised to be the father of a nation where God's promises will be fulfilled. Abraham's great-grandson Judah is singled out as having a special significance in these promises. Moses leads the nation into freedom, which will become a foreshadowing of the freedom the Messiah will bring. Hundreds of years after that, King David gives us a picture of the Messiah being the ultimate king. The writing of the prophets typically describe harsh warnings and devastations, but woven in to the writings of the prophets are promises and prophecies about a coming Messiah who would finally rescue and deliver God's people. The Old Testament promises a deliverer, a rescuer, someone that God would rise up to bring his people into a permanent state of freedom, prosperity, and peace. And this belief, it runs deep. This belief, it drives the faith of the people that God has promised a Messiah. Now, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament is about 400 years of history. And the political landscape in that 400 years, it changed dramatically. And if you were to turn the page from the last book of the Old Testament to the first page of the New Testament, you'll notice that a lot has changed. We've gone from Jerusalem being under Persian Empire oppression to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas being governed by the Romans. This period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament is known as the uh, intertestamental period. I got it eventually. And this period of 400 years, this is when the origins of Hanukkah begins. It's not in the Old Testament, but it's in between this period of Old Testament and New Testament. See, the Greek, Alexander the Great, had defeated the Persian Empire, and it was followed by some fighting over who would have political control over that region. And Antiochus IV took over in the second century BC, and he enforced Greek customs and cultures. He forbid Jewish religious practices. That means for a period of time, God's people living in Jerusalem, Judea, and the surrounding areas, they were forbidden from performing circumcision. They were forbidden from honoring the Sabbath. He destroyed copies of the scripture, the Torah. And the final insult was Antiochus IV set up an idol of the Greek god Zeus in the temple. And reportedly, he sacrificed pigs on the altar. If you know anything about how to be kosher, you know sacrificing a pig in God's temple was a massive abrasion to the Jewish people. And there was an old priest named Mattathias, and he had five sons, and they began an uprising. One of his sons was called Judas Maccabee, and he was considered the leader of this revolt that sprang up. Now, Judas Maccabee is the reason why in the New Testament there's um, six people called Judas. He was such a hero, he'd made such a difference, he was someone that was so noteworthy and so honored and respected that, at least in the New Testament, six people named their son after him, not just the one that would betray Jesus, but six people are named after Judas. This is why. It's because this guy led a revolution that transformed Jewish history. The Maccabees, they fought the overlords for a number of years, and eventually the revolt was a success. And the Jewish people, as part of their success, as part of this overthrowing, are able to rededicate the temple for true worship. But in the temple, there was only enough oil for one day, but it ended up miraculously lasting for eight days. And this is the origin of Hanukkah, that the temple was able to be prepared for worship because this oil didn't run out when, naturally speaking, it should have. But it started as the Festival of Lights. 
And the reason I bring this up today is that in the New Testament world where Jesus is born, the Jewish people had a recent history. Just a few generations earlier, there was a victory that was won by blunt, brute force. After this was as 100 years or so of peace for God's people. There was relative freedom that the Jewish people were able to live in for around 100 years until the Romans would take over. So that the desire for freedom to come back, the desire for freedom to be restored to God's people, well, the last time that they experienced this freedom, it was taken by force. A revolution struck up. They aggressively stood up to their enemies and were successful. And it's not surprising that this has stuck to people, that when there's oppression, when outsiders are trying to trample on your ability to worship and love God, that the way to combat this is by brute force, is by military might, is by standing tall, is by fighting tooth and nail, is by doing whatever you can to combat. And the belief crept in that the Messiah was going to be the one to lead this fight so that finally they'd be done. Now, under the Romans, the institutions of king and the high priest have become corrupted through politics and were running contrary to the Old Testament requirements. But they were being propped up and being protected and backed up um, with force by the Roman army. And much of the Old Testament, the images of anointing and the Messiah, they were presented with the idea and the image of the anointing of kings and priests. And fast forward to the time of Jesus and those offices have been corrupted. Those offices weren't trusted anymore. Those offices had lost respect, they'd lost integrity. To correct the offices of priest and king, it was assumed it would need to be done with force. Now in the scriptures, we're told in the Old Testament that the first century believers grabbed onto is that God would raise up a person, that they would return to the glory days of David, that they would return to the land of milk and honey promises that Moses brought the people, that the temple would be restored to a place of worship. And it makes sense that the Jewish people had taken all the scriptures taught them about the Messiah and let the violent revolution that happened a few generations ago give the impression that the true Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, would defeat the Romans, restore the temple priesthood, and defeat all Jewish enemies with brute force to usher in permanent peace. And the Messiah would then take the throne as the rightful king appointed by God. And for what it's worth, I don't think it's wild to come to these conclusions. In hindsight, we can look and we can interpret it all through our understanding of who Jesus is and that he's the Messiah and the person Jesus is, and we can think that it's crazy they would come to these conclusions, but I truthfully don't think that's a fair assessment. I think it makes sense that people led to these conclusions, that this is how this was going to be. When the Messiah was born, there's a massive set of expectations by what the Messiah would look like and how this would all go, and it's nothing like they expected when it all came to pass. Consequently, 2,000 years ago, there was incredible confusion and debate and ultimately violence about whether Jesus is or is not the Messiah. I think it's typical of humanity to try and make sense of what's going on. And I kind of think of it like a, a mixing bowl or even a blender. And in the blender or in the mixing bowl, you put in the promises of God from the scriptures. You also put in the blender your life experiences. You also put in the mixing bowl or the blender your biggest fears and frustrations. You put in how you understand the problems you're facing, your hopes, your dreams, the popular wisdom of the time, and you put it all in the mixing bowl, and you mix it all up, and what you get is your expectations. That's what we have here. There's people waiting for a Messiah. They put in the promises of God. They put in their own hang-ups. They put in their own fears, their own frustrations, and all goes in, and what comes out is your expectations. 
That's what comes out, and that's what built in these people is an expectation of what the Messiah was going to look like and how the Messiah was going to fix this up. How God raised up a deliverer and how the first century people reacted teaches us something. God is committed to fulfilling his promises, but we would settle for him meeting our expectations. God is committed to fulfilling his promises, but we, me, you, everyone else, we would settle for him meeting our expectations. Amen. We believe that God is fulfilling his promises and that he's faithful. We cannot obligate God to do anything, but he is committed to keeping his promises. The whole thought of a promised Messiah that was fulfilled in Jesus demonstrates that God exceeds expectations. If we get lost in the how of it all and filter it through our own experience and priorities, then our expectations of God working in our lives will be a pale version of what he's truly doing. And there's a massive expectation on the Messiah. Everyone in the Jewish people, they were gathered together, and every time they prayed, they would pray for the Messiah. Every time a Roman soldier abused them, it reinforced the desire for Messiah to come. Every time they were overtaxed so money could be sent back to Rome, it meant that they were more and more desperate to see the Messiah come so this would all be done with. Every time their religious freedoms and ability to worship freely, or they were reminded of the corruption of the temple, or the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, or the sin that was evident among God's people, it reinforced the hope and belief that one day, Messiah will come and usher in all of God's promises. We're going to read a passage from uh, Luke's gospel, and we're going to read about a, an instance in the life of John the Baptist, and John was a relative of Jesus. He was born just a few months before him, and he started preaching shortly before Jesus and was effective and gathered a following. And John's role is uh, he prepared the people to understand the need for a Messiah and the need to receive Jesus. John's role was one of preparation, getting people ready to receive Jesus. But this is something interesting that I thought was helpful in all this. Luke 3.15, everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon, and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater than I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, some key moments here that are helpful in helping us understand the Messiah at this time and the cultural expectation around the Messiah is that everyone was expecting, that's what we just read, everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon. They were eager to know if John the Baptist was it. This says something about the cultural temperature that we see in the time of the New Testament. People are on the edge of their seat waiting for a Messiah, and they are hoping John's the guy. And it's interesting to hear from John's perspective that someone is coming who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. People were eager and expectant for the Messiah to come, and John was a good candidate. But he was quick to let the people know he's going to be greater than me. The Messiah is going to be far better than I am, far more powerful than I am. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. When he comes, his baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire is going to change the world. Now, what does all this mean for you and me? 2,000 years later, what does it mean for us? What can we learn from this? And what I wrote down that I thought was helpful for me, and hopefully it's helpful for you, is God fulfilling his promises is greater than God meeting my expectations. God fulfilling his promises is greater than God meeting my expectations. God exceeds expectations. We think too small. 
We get lost in what's immediately in front of us. We forget that God is working on a much grander scale. We forget that God is painting this picture on a much larger canvas than we can comprehend. We're consumed with what's going on around us. We try to map out and predict how God will work. And God's plans far exceed what I can wrap my head around. When it was the right time for the Messiah to come, he would be greater and achieve more than anyone expected. We see this as people learn about the truth that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the one promised throughout the whole Old Testament that he is God's anointed. The expectations that people had were dwarfed in the realization of who Jesus is and what he achieved on the cross. Both here and in his eternal kingdom, Jesus exceeded people's expectations. Jesus being fully God and fully human exceeded expectations. The eternal security for everyone to place their faith in Jesus as Lord. The birth of the church, a new community of faith that spread all over the world. All of this far exceeds people's expectations. We read a portion of scripture earlier, and I want to read the verse following that back to Mark 8. Then he asked them, this is Jesus, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. This goes on, but Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. You are the Messiah. That's right, but keep it to yourself. This is known as the messianic secret, and it's somewhat of a confusing portion of Scripture, and it's not the only time it happened. There's a few other instances in Mark's gospel where you'll see this. Let me read a couple of these to you. Jesus raises a sick girl from the dead. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened, and then he told them to give her something to eat. This is after healing a deaf man in Mark 7. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. This is following the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 8. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And then in Mark 9, leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. The question, the obvious question is, why not tell everyone? Why not scream this from the rooftops? Why not scream this far and wide? Why tell the disciples to keep this a secret? If you or I were in charge of Jesus' PR, we'd be broadcasting this as loudly and as often as we could. And this is known as the Messianic secret, and there are libraries of books that are written um, with different theories and different ideas about what all this means. And I came across a suggestion this week. I'm not ready to commit to this and say this is definitively what it is, but I thought it was interesting enough to share with you. The thought is that if Jesus declared for all to hear, I'm the Messiah, what people would have heard is, my expectations about to be met. You're the Messiah, that's correct. Jesus then spent the next few, however long, working with Peter in the early church. The mission of the early church was correcting that expectation that Peter and others would have had. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. What people think is, okay, now it's time for us to destroy the Roman Empire with brute force. So Jesus, no, okay, don't tell anyone. We got to correct expectations. We got to do this right. There's a way to do this that may not make sense to us. People are eagerly waiting. That's what we read with this encounter with John the Baptist. People are eagerly waiting the Messiah. They're eager for it. They want it. They're desperate for it. They're crying out for it. Every time they gather together to pray, they're praying for the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, if we tell them now, they're not just coming believing the promises of God are being fulfilled. They're bringing their own expectations. They're bringing their own history. They're bringing their own understandings of the problems that they've got. They're bringing the prevailing thought of the community. And all of this is forming an expectation that's faulty. The suggestion is that by loudly announcing, I'm the Messiah, it would cause a following not based on God's promises being fulfilled, but on people wanting their expectations met. 
But in people desiring to see their expectations met, they miss something, and we see this happening. In the life of Jesus and all that was accomplished on the cross, it taught the earliest believers and every believer since that he infinitely exceeded the expectations of the first century Jewish people. When the time was right and the message went out all over the world, much of the New Testament is concerned with and addresses correcting people's expectations around the Messiah. That's one of the reasons you have Paul doing extensive explorations of the Old Testament to correct expectations and show new believers that the Messiah was even greater than they were expecting. Now to think about how Jesus exceeded expectations of people, I think it'd be helpful to look at the three roles that we see in the Old Testament that were involved in anointing. This idea of having the oil anointed on their head. And that's the priest, the king, and the prophet. And I want to consider how Jesus exceeded the expectations in each of these. This promise of these are the three people that are typically anointed. And Jesus exceeds expectations in these three areas. The first is the priest. And the priest was to fulfill the work of the temple to perform the sacrifices, to make sure everything in the temple is running in accordance with the Old Testament instructions. There were specific sacrifices and festivals and even special clothing, and they had to adhere to special regulations to maintain cleanliness. If they were defiled or unclean, they were unable to fulfill their priestly duties. It all gave people a chance to stay in a covenant relationship with God, and God through the priesthood made a way for his people to stay in relationship with him. But the system had become corrupted over the years. People that were unqualified to be priests were put in high positions. And the expectation was that the Messiah would restore integrity to the temple. Jesus, we see him having interactions with the temple. He visited the temple as a child. He was dedicated there at eight days old. Jesus taught in the temple as an adult. And Jesus famously started flipping tables and driving out people with a whip, those who were mistreating the temple. But as Messiah, he never operated as a priest in the Old Testament expectation. Instead, He became the perfect sacrifice. The sacrificial system of the temple was so huge and so important and so vital. That was the key role of the priests, was to oversee the sacrifice. Jesus did not oversee the sacrifice. He became the perfect sacrifice. The book of Hebrews, it talks about this an awful lot and makes incredible comparisons to Jesus and the priesthood. Here's a couple of helpful verses from Hebrews that explore this. He is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin, He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. Amen. And following down to chapter 8. But now Jesus, our high priest has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. Better covenant, better promises. Down to chapter 10. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, that one sacrifice on the cross, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. The expectation of the people was that the Messiah would come and the temple would go back to how it was. But this is the promise of something new, something better. Jesus didn't bring back the good old days. He started something new. 
Instead of trust and faith in the priest performing sacrifices, instead of trusting in the temple system, he fulfilled those requirements. So now you and I are invited to trust in him and his sacrifice. And this is why my faith has not been impacted at all by the destruction of the temple in, by the Romans in AD 70. Jesus fulfilled the requirement of the temple system and became the great high priest. Simple thought about this is Jesus' priest, the expectation is restore integrity to temple sacrifice. Fulfilled promise is the ultimate permanent sacrifice. Of the Bible plan that we're inviting anyone to be a part of online, recently went through the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus is known for being a challenging book to get through. It can be very complicated, and there's all sorts of things in there, but all the actions that are required in the book of Leviticus, all the things that the priests were required to do, the different sacrifices. For New Testament believers, it's important reminder to us as we read that, that Jesus has fulfilled all of this. It still shows the heart of God, but it's been accomplished and fulfilled in Jesus because of his ultimate permanent sacrifice. He redefined the priesthood. Our confidence now is in his sacrifice on the cross, not our ability to fulfill the Old Testament requirements through the priests. Moving on to Jesus as king. Jesus as king, the expectation was to conquer the Romans and rule the nations. The fulfilled promise is he served others and embraced humility. Matthew 20, starting in verse 24. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, James and John, they wanted to have a special prominent place in God's kingdom. And they bugged Jesus about it. They were indignant, the other 10 disciples, but Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over people, kings, leaders, rulers, people that you've come accustomed to having to follow. They lord it over people. Officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus spent time with the sick. He fed the hungry. He cared for the poor. He spent his time with people of low social status and no honor to their name. He washed the feet of his followers and is forever recognized as the king of kings. There's something that I don't think I will ever understand. So there's people that are in ministry, myself included, there's always a very, very common story of how a pastor began their time in ministry. It normally is with they're the first ones there and the last ones to leave. They turn up and straighten church chairs. I've talked about that before. Um, it's normally about they do youth ministry and work with smeddy middle school kids. If you're a middle school kid here, I'm sorry, but your smell is unquestionable. It's driving kids to church. It's answering the phone at 3 a.m. with crazy questions about, you know, can God make a stone so big that he couldn't lift it up? Like all this stuff, right? It's always the story of pastors before they step into full-time ministry is always a long history of just doing whatever, whenever. You want to serve the church. It's with an air of humility of, I just want to build the church. I'm just desperate to see people connect with God. Pastors everywhere, that is the story. And then somehow, it can get to a point in ministry where pastors start feeling like they're a bit diva Hollywood. I have a story, and it's probably the most extreme version I could think of, but this is someone I know, and I'll be honest, someone that I like, but him and his wife, they would go to the same church every year. They would go as guest speakers at the same sort of time of the year, and they would go, and it was a long-standing friendship between this pastor and this church that they would go and visit to, and then one year, 
They got to the hotel room and the wrong orange juice was there. And now they don't go back because of the orange juice. What in the world is going on there? How did we stray? How can a minister stray so far from wanting to serve people and love people and put people first and help anybody and everybody connect with a loving God? And how on earth can we let orange juice be the limit? I don't get it. And that's what came to my mind when I'm reading about Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the most majestic, the most supreme in all creation. He was determined and committed to serve all. The sick, the hungry, the disabled, people that were wrecking their lives with sin. Jesus was committed. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care about you. I'm going to put you first. I'm going to go to the cross for you. How on earth has it crept into the church that we're going to put ourselves first? Leaders are going to prioritize themselves, that we're going to be self-serving, that what we want and our preferences, all of that is going to be paramount. Ridiculous. Jesus is the ultimate example of the king, the highest of the high, the most noble, majestic man that will ever live, can ever even be conceived of, can ever even be thought of. And yet his commitment was to serve all, was to become a servant. The expectation was that the king of kings would conquer the Romans and rule the nations. Instead, the fulfilled promise is that he served others and embraced humility. And the promise of Messiah being a prophet, the third of these, the priest, king, and prophet, it goes all the way back to Moses. Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses is speaking. Moses continued, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Now the role of the Old Testament prophets, it was often to declare God's holiness and to call out wicked behavior. It was a call to repentance and to abandon sin. And we've already read that some wondered if John the Baptist was the Messiah. And honestly, I think it's because he had strong preaching against sin. John would tell people to come and be baptized and be done with sinful living. He called out the sin of the religious leaders. He called out the sin of King Herod and ultimately that got him killed. But it's not surprising that some started to look to John as the Messiah because he took the expected prophet role because he took that stance. And he condemned sin. Now, Jesus, one of the things that he absolutely astounds me, and this is just one of many, of course, but one of the ways that Jesus astounds me is that he was able to get the balance, I would say the impossible balance exactly right of never, ever condoning sin. And yet people knew without any shadow of a doubt that he loved them in an indescribable way. That balance... I don't know how we get that, but I want to find out. I, I don't know how we get that. There was never any doubt. Jesus died because sin is wrecking people's lives. And yet he loved them so much. How do we get that balance right? I don't know about you, but if I ever take a stand against sin, I seem like a judgmental jerk. If ever I decide, you know, I'm just going to love people, it sounds like I'm wishy-washy. That balance, it's not easy to strike. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that I figured out how to do it yet. 
but I want to be a church that finds out how to do that. How do we stand up for godliness? How do we declare that God's goodness, that sin is devastating, it ruins lives. It's not worth doing that thing. Find freedom in God, and God loves you so much. No matter where you are today, no matter what's going on, no matter what your history looks like, no matter what you're going home to. How do we get that balance? I don't know, but we're gonna find out together. Come on, somebody, this is a commitment of our church. We will be a church that will stand up for God and we will love people no matter what. Matthew 9, later, Matthew, a tax collector, worst of the worst, invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other just beautiful sinners. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Jesus, the friend of sinners, loved sinful people. And consequently, people have been running away from sin and running towards God for 2,000 years. Jesus as prophet, the expectation is he would condemn sinners. The fulfilled promise is he was a friend of sinners. My hope and prayer is that we can have the same balance that Jesus did. Now, the primary belief around the Messiah was the belief that he would use military force to bring freedom. Israel and Judah had significant military victories in the past. King David and Joshua especially experienced incredible military victories. We talked about Judas Maccabees leading a revolt against the Syrians in the period between the Old and New Testament. The expectation was that the Messiah would overthrow the Romans and all enemies in an even greater way, leading to permanent blessing and peace. But Jesus wasn't limited to the cultural expectation. He had a bigger plan. Jesus may not have been a military general, but he defeated the kingdom of darkness and defeated the power of sin and death in our lives. Jesus made it possible for unworthy people to be invited and honored in an eternal kingdom. Jesus leveled the landscape. No matter the social status, ethnicity, or background, people could find freedom and forgiveness in him. Jesus is the cornerstone of all the history of creation. There is no comparison to the power and authority of Jesus. No one has shaped history more than Jesus Christ, the Messiah. As a priest, as priest, he became the ultimate permanent sacrifice. As king, he didn't demand his rights as king of kings, but served others and embraced humility. As a prophet, he didn't condemn sinners, but struck the impossible balance and was the friend of sinners. To trust God to fulfill his promises without filling in the gaps with my own expectations, this takes trust. We talked about the blender and there's the promises of God in there and then we put in my experiences and we put in my history and what everyone else is saying and we filter it all and we mix it all up and what comes out is our expectations for it to be just rooted in God's promises. It takes trust. It means being comfortable with not having it all figured out. It means we don't get consumed with the how. How is God weaving this together? How is God bringing all this to pass? but trust that he's working on a much bigger scale than I can ever imagine. To be consumed with promises and having those drive my expectations. God is committed to fulfilling his promises, but we would settle for him meeting our expectations. God fulfilling his promises is greater than God meeting my expectations. God exceeds expectations. When I'm thinking too small, when I'm consumed with what's immediately in front of me, he's exceeding my expectations. God is working on a much grander scale, on a much larger canvas. We're consumed with what's going on around us. We try to map out and predict how God will work it all out. But God is fulfilling His promises. 
and it's greater than God meeting my expectations. A couple of questions for you, and hopefully this week you'll have a chance to pray through these and perhaps talk through them with somebody. The first one is this. How are you shaping your expectations of Jesus? How are you shaping your expectations of Jesus? Are you mixing the promises of God with your life experience and how you understand the problems you're facing and the things that you're afraid of and your hopes and dreams and the popular wisdom of the community we're in? Or is your expectations rooted just in who he is and his promises and being comfortable and trusting him with the gaps with not understanding at all? Second question, where have you seen God exceed expectations as he fulfills his promises? Where have you seen God exceed expectations as he fulfills his promises? I want to reach an old age with story after story of God fulfilling his promises, of God doing wonderful things in and through my life. I have some, but I want more. Remembering that these moments, God doing great things in our lives, it drives us forward to continue trusting him. And just as I hope that for myself, I hope that for every single one of you here, that we reach an old age full of years with stories to tell of God's fulfilling promises in our lives. And we're going to have communion together in just a moment. Before we do, I want to go back to the passage in Mark 8 where we started. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Then they asked them, who do you say that I am? Now, Peter, he gave the right answer. Peter gave the right answer, you're the Messiah. You're it. All my hopes, all my dreams, the solutions to all my problems, all the things that I'm afraid of, I believe it's wrapped up in you. You are the one. You're the rescuer. You're the deliverer. You're the one that can set me free. You're the one that can fix this whole thing up. It's you. You are the Messiah. Peter got the right answer. And that same question that Jesus posed to Peter is the same question he poses to us today. Who do you say that I am? If you're here and you've decided, you've committed your life that you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to put your trust and your faith and your confidence in him, you are experiencing a relationship with the Messiah. You are experiencing a healed, whole, restored relationship with the creator of the universe. It's far greater than a military victory. But you may be here, and that question of who do you say that I am, it may make you uncomfortable. You may have never thought about it before. It may be something that if someone were to look at you eye in the eye and say, hey, who do you say Jesus is, it would just kind of get you awkward and weird. Now let me tell you, you may be at that point today where you know that you know that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. You may not be able to explain it. You might not fully understand it. You may have a ton of questions, but you know that you know Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and He can set you free, and He can restore your broken relationship with God. And if that's you today, the good news is, you can start praying today and you can start to turn everything around. The bad news is you are flat out of excuses for waiting another moment. Today is the day where it can all turn around for you. If you believe this, there is no reason, no excuse, no justification from waiting another moment. This is it. The day where the greatest decision you could ever make can happen. And we're going to pray a prayer in just a moment. And then we do this at the end of every service. And we're going to pray a prayer. And when we pray this prayer, I want you to be included if you're at that point where you're ready to make a decision to follow Jesus. 
I'm not going to give you a quiz. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to do anything weird. I just want to know who we're praying for when we all pray together in just a moment. So I invite everyone here, if you just close your eyes and bow your heads, let's just give discretion to the people around you. Help us focus on what really matters right now. But if you be brave enough today and honest enough today to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not in right relationship with God, but I want to be. Please include me when we pray. I'd love to know who we're praying for. So if this is you today, could you just put your hand in the air? I'd love to know who we're praying for. Awesome. Anybody else here? Thank you. Anyone else? Amen. Love it. Thank you. Anyone else here? Amen. Thank you. Anyone else? I promise I won't embarrass you. I won't do anything weird, but I'd love to know who we're praying for. Awesome. Thank you. Wonderful. Online, you can just click that button that says, I raise my hand, and you're definitely going to be included when we pray. Anybody else here? Amazing. Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate people making the best decision. Come on, everybody. Let's pray this prayer. The words are going to be on the screen together. And I'm going to invite you to pray this with passion, believing that people's lives are being changed. And if you put your hand up, pray this prayer, believing that things start to change when you pray a prayer like this. Come on, everybody. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, one more time, everybody. Let's celebrate with people. Amen.